Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining this webinar and marking the release of a rather large data analysis we've compiled um, that is looking at disparities facing immigrant parents and their children. My name is Margie McHugh, and I'm going to be moderating today's session, and three specialists from our MPI team will be presenting. Uh, you see there on the screen, Jay Kopstetter, uh, who is a co-author of the fact sheet series and overall lead for other elements of the analysis being released today. Uh, we'll also be joined by Marky, Maki Park, Senior Policy Analyst for Early Care and Education, and Delia Pompa, Senior Fellow for Education Policy. Maki and, data will, Maki and Delia will discuss implications and opportunities for leveraging the data uh, in the ECEC and K-12 spaces. And I'll jump in afterwards to briefly discuss the same for the adult education field. So just a few um, logistics before we get going. Uh, you see on the screen there, um, please either call or um, tweet or email at those um, contact points you see on the screen if you have any problems with the webinar platform. Um, we don't have voice Q&A, so please use the Q&A uh, function throughout the webinar. And you can also write us at events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet us. Um, and, um, and then a number of you have already written in asking about audio for the webinar. So you can see the, um, the web address there. Um, we always put stuff up the day after and then already the whole, uh, uh, the pieces of the analysis that we'll be talking about today are available on our website. So I'll just um, quickly uh, say a bit about what to expect in the webinar today. So um, basically, you know, we'll, we'll, we will give an overview of the characteristics um, and the findings that we that we have from the analysis. We are going to we are planning that we can take a short break after that. If any of you have questions uh, or clarifications, more clarifications, just you know, did I get did I understand this correctly, sort of thing. Um, and if we uh, we're, we will absolutely answer any question that we get. Um, if we don't get to it during the actual webinar, we will um, follow up with you um, to make sure that we do so. But then we'll get into the ideas for promoting equity and addressing disparities. That's where um, Maki and Delia and I will walk through a few things um, related to that. And then that'll also be followed by Q&A. So, um, so that's the basic plan. And um, we, it's a lot to cover, but we think we'll be fine getting through it. Um, so I just quickly wanted to say that while our center works broadly on integration policy issues, our deepest areas of focus are the ones that you see on the screen. Um, that's where we focus our policy research, data analysis, and the uh, several technical assistance and capacity building initiatives and networks that we coordinate with key field actors. Um, so I would say that it's the, the kind of interconnections um, across them um, that um, that has that really put the the need for this analysis um, onto onto our radar screen, and um, I'll just say a little bit about um, about that in terms of just you know the overall context for the analysis to get us started. So, first of all, as is the case for many of you, our work is shaped by very large bodies of research that have developed over several decades. Um, that speak to the strengths and commitment of parents to their children, and also the many challenges that poverty can pose as they seek to support their children's healthy development and success. But we've been struck for years now in our work at the center that while early childhood, K-12, 
health and social services and other systems all speak about the importance of parents as poor, poor partners in their efforts. There's usually huge gaps in policy funding and program capacities in actually forming those partnerships and connections, and especially so with immigrant parents. So when the pandemic happened, um, you know, and we had the shift to um, remote pre-K-12 education, uh, the disparities facing immigrant families were spotlighted all over the country and the particularly um, uh, the particularly severe impacts on um, dual language learner, English learner children, and of course, other minority and low income populations. And schools made heroic efforts uh, for sure. Um, but in addition to sort of the instructional and other issues that kind of couldn't be solved, we also really saw in stark relief the issues related to digital access and digital literacy challenges that even getting laptops or Chromebooks to kids were not able to solve. And that again, sort of branches over into the purpose of this analysis. So then of course, this has also been a watershed year for insisting that there be a reckoning with systemic racism and momentum around that is also closely tied to the recognition of vast disparities in income and opportunity within our country. And now many calls and commitments to ensure an inclusive recovery. So, we, I'm sure like all of you, see lots of opportunities to, res to reshape policy and program frameworks in ways that will and can advance equity. And so that's really the purpose of this analysis. We created it to make key disparities experienced by immigrant families with young school age and also middle and high school children. Um, you know, we're, we're leading with the uh, young and, um, and, and elementary school age children, but we have data for other populations. Jake will talk more about that. Um, but we definitely wanted to connect the data to ideas of ways to apply the data and efforts to more equitably and responsibly serve um, immigrant, immigrant parents and, um, and thereby also their children, really using a two-generation lens in this. So, um, so uh, I also, we also wanted to make sure that we put another important element of context in front of you. And um, that's really thinking about what are, um, what are some of the potential opportunities that are in front of us uh, in terms of using the data. So you can see there on the screen, pretty much all of you who are on the call, um, I would say are very aware that there's a lot happening um, in terms of uh, decisions that state and county lawmakers and agency leaders can make. Uh, and we, we very much are going to talk about how some of this data we think um, can be turned into equity sensitive measures or ways to be measuring equitable service and creating more responsive programming. Um, so more on that as we move through. But um, if you're working at the state and local levels, you might not be as aware that there are two important executive orders that the Biden administration has put out. And we're pretty hopeful that um, this executive order on advancing racial equity and also the executive order creating the task force on new Americans are both gonna be ways that, um, that anyone who has the, um, has the inclination um, could be putting forward uh, 
information, opinions, opportunities, data, pushing them into these efforts. And, uh, and we certainly think that it, it should be possible to have equity indicators in ECEC, K-12, adult ed, and other systems um, put on the table of those initiatives. So happy to talk to any of you on the call more about that. Um, but we think those are important um, efforts for, uh, for everyone to have their eye on. Um, Yes, we've passed a few of the, uh, of the major relief bills. Um, obviously, infrastructure is still to come. There's also just the budget, the regular federal budget um, that's, being, uh, that's moving forward right now uh, for the next fiscal year. So um, there are just many, many opportunities to be um, connecting with congressional staff and talking about potential appropriations or legislative vehicles where um, within the various systems that we're going to be talking about today, um, there really, there really do seem to be clear openings to be talking further about equity. And then the last one that we just wanted to note, you know, doing, thinking with the two generation lens, or I think really the the kind of the me, one of the messages, prime messages we're trying to put forward with this analysis is that we spend a systems systems are rightly charged with trying to work with young children, uh, with children in K-12 and the like. Uh, but we talk all the time about parents being such an important part, uh, partners in those efforts and the like. But, um, but really it is, it, it requires thinking across systems usually because no system has sufficient capacity uh, to be doing that effectively. And so thinking also very creatively looking at these data about opportunities for partnership and thinking across systems about how to have the sorts of initiatives that might meet the needs, uh, might be better able to meet the needs that we're talking about here. It just seems like another, another opening that, um, that all of the very creative and active people uh, who joined us for this webinar um, we think could really move forward with. So, um, so with that, I'll pass the baton to Jay Kofstetter who's done so much excellent work uh, in shepherding this analysis through um, and the many components of it that you're gonna hear about today beyond the specific uh, series of fact sheets that, um, that are really at the heart of it. Jake. Great, thanks so much, Margie. So hi everyone, welcome. So in my section of the, this presentation today, my three goals are to first provide an overall sense of what our analysis examined, second, to provide you with some of our top line findings, and then third, explore the contours of the data and how it can be leveraged for distant, different systems as well as geographies. So I just wanna mention upfront that today you'll only be getting a snapshot of what is included in the entirety of this data analysis, but I encourage you to look at the data for the United States, your state, as well as your county to have the chance to examine all the details that unfortunately we won't be able to mention today as well. So as Margie mentioned, this analysis examines foreign born or immigrant parents and native born parents using age bands based on the age of the parents' children. For example, we analyze parents of children ages zero to four, parents of children ages five to 10, 11 to 13, and zero to 18, which we call overall or all parents. So these age bands, as well as the overall parent category, correspond to the population served by different systems, such as the early childhood system, different components of the K-12 system, the social services system, and also the adult education system. So a unique piece of this analysis is the cross tabulations we were able to do by English proficiency, educational attainment, digital access, and poverty, all of which demonstrate how disparities can compound for immigrant families. So in addition to a lot of the data that we included, for example, how many parents, how many immigrant parents are limited English proficient, 
how many, uh, how many immigrant parents are low income. Using cross-tabulated data, we're also able to combine those indicators to be able to look how many parents, for example, are limited English proficient as well as low income. And using cross-tabulated cross data, we can better observe how disparities compound for immigrant parents and families and also act as obstacles for integration and economic mobility, as well as the school readiness and academic success for children. So on the data side, this analysis used pooled American community survey data from 2014 to 2018. Uh, it includes the geographies included in the analysis are the United States as a whole, all 50 states plus Washington, D.C., and the top 50 counties by total population. So the data is laid out in two ways, both via fact sheets and state, ooh, excuse me, and state and county Excel files. So here you can find a list of states that we've published fact sheets for. These are the 31 states with the highest immigrant populations. And in addition to these state fact sheets, we also published a national fact sheets. So these fact sheets themselves, they only analyze parents of children zero to four and parents of children five to 10 and help both contextualize the data and provide some initial implications and analysis as well. However, we also published Excel files with the complete data for all 50 states, the United States and Washington DC that include all of the age bands. In addition, uh, the 50 counties I mentioned, we were able to publish data for parents of children zero to four, five to 10 and all parents with children under the age of 18. So um, now I'd like to give you an overview of the results of our data analysis and our top line findings. So at the most basic level, immigrants represented a substantial share of the parent population, both nationwide and, and in states. So up to or over half of the parent population in some geographies was made up of immigrants, especially when looking at parents of young children or parents of children ages zero to four. And despite their strengths and resilience, immigrant parents are disproportionately likely to face serious obstacles to their, obstacles to their integration into the United States and their economic mobility. So these obstacles also undermine their children's school readiness and educational trajectories as, as well in some cases. So these barriers include income levels, formal education, English proficiency, and digital access. And in addition, as I mentioned before, these barriers are not only widespread, but they also often compound with each other as our data analysis shows. So as Margie mentioned, these challenges often sit critically unaddressed or underaddressed at the intersection of the early childhood, K-12, adult education, and social services system. So now I'm going to move on to present some of our top line findings, but also to give a sense of how the data can be leveraged to compare needs of immigrant families across systems and geographies. So first we wanted to highlight one of our key findings, which uh, revolves around poverty and show the disparity uh, in income levels between immigrants as well as native-born uh, native parents and families. So for this analysis, we used 200% of the federal poverty line as our definition of low income. And looking at the graph, which displays national data, you can see um, a bar for each of the age bands, the orange bar representing immigrants and the teal bar representing native-born that shows the share of each population that is low income. So as you can see, significant shares of immigrant parents were low income, nearly half for many of the age bands, and a large share of immigrant parents were low income compared to native born parents. This data also replicated fairly consistently across um, all of the geographies we looked at, including most states and most counties. So this represented a key finding of ours given poverty and its associated challenges can not only hinder the integration and well-being of immigrant parents and families, but also negatively affect the healthy development, school readiness and educational success of their children.
So as I mentioned, a key part of this analysis was the ability to cross-tabulate indicators for both immigrant and native-born parents. So the data revealed that many immigrant parents are facing multiple barriers. So the compounding natures of, these challenge, uh, of this challenge is that these uh, compounding barriers do not always sit easily addressed in one system, nor can just one service or program necessarily address all of these challenges without leveraging other programs or systems. So there's much more to unpack in the published data, and I would encourage all of you to look into that. But first, I wanted to give you a key sense of some of the uh, important cross-tabulations from the data that we looked at. All the data I provide on this slide is for parents of all children, as we call it, or parent, every parent of someone um, under the age of 18. So low-income immigrant parents experience severe disparities um, in, the, in comparison of their levels of formal education versus native-born low-income parents. For example, nationally, 45% of immigrant parents did not have a high school diploma or equivalent, 27% had less than a ninth grade level of education, and 9% had less than a fifth grade level of education. Another important compounding barrier we analyzed was uh, how education levels and income levels intersected with limited English proficiency. So based on the data we ran at the national level, level over half or 51% of immigrant parents were limited English proficient and one quarter of all immigrant parents were limited English proficient and did not have a high school diploma, and 31% were limited English proficient and low income. So in addition, another unique part of this analysis that we were able to complete was to look at digital access, which where we looked at disparities in access to the internet, as well as access to computers or laptops. So obviously this has become a very important uh, component of analysis with the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the expectation that parents will be supervising and supporting the remote education of their children. So looking at access to the internet and access to a computer slash laptop between immigrant and native born parents, we're able to see both barriers to access for both populations, but also disparities in the likelihood of immigrant parents not having access to the internet or access to a computer slash laptop. In addition, our cross tabulations allow, allowed us to see how limited English proficiency, poverty, low levels of formal education, all could predict troubling low levels of digital access for immigrant parents, just serious implications for parents' supervision of remote learning, as well as the expectation that they would serve as supplementary instructors for their children's education. So look, the following graph represents not only one of these key findings, but also gives a sense of how the indicators and geographies can be combined in a powerful way. So as I mentioned on the previous slide, one of our key findings was the low levels of formal education that showed disparate need, uh, that showed disparate need within, uh, excuse me, sorry. One of our key findings was the cross tabulation of low income as well as educational attainment, which we show uh, in this graph. So in addition, our analysis enabled us to see how the, having less than a high school diploma was a much more complex challenge for many immigrant parents than, uh, than is revealed in the traditional measure of has less than a high school diploma. So looking at the figure, this figure shows low-income parents of children ages zero to four, both in the United States and the top 10 states by immigrant population. So there's two bars for each state, one for immigrants or foreign-born and one for native-born. Each bar represents the share of parents who do not have a high school diploma or equivalent, and within each of those bars, orange represents those with less than a fifth grade level of education, blue for those parents with a fifth to eighth grade level, level of education, and teal for those parents who have a ninth to 12th grade level of education, but no diploma. Um, there's no need to look at the data for each state. We merely included the numbers so that folks from different states could see how the data played out in their particular state. But looking across the figure, you can see that the foreign born bar is higher for each state, 
indicating that low-income immigrant parents were much more likely to have a high school diploma or equivalent than native-born parents in each of the top states. And in addition, if you take note of the blue and orange columns for immigrants across each of the states, you can see that immigrants were also more likely to have less than a ninth and less than a fifth grade education. So looking on the state level, you can see how serious some of these disparities are if you look at California, for example. So looking at California, 8% of immigrant parents of young children had less than a fifth grade education compared to 1% of native born parents. In addition, 28% of immigrant parents of young children had less than a ninth grade education and nearly half or 48% of immigrant parents of young children had less than a high school diploma or equivalent versus just 16% for native born parents. So as you can see, these disparities exist across all the top states we looked at by immigrant population. However, the level of disparity and the severity of the disparity does dis differ between the states. So I wanted to take a, a look at another one of these key findings that we found, which was in another important cross-tabulation or limited English proficiency and level of formal education. Here again, we're looking at uh, parents of children ages zero to four. However, the geographies for this graph are the 20 most populous counties in the United States. So the combination of not speaking English proficiently and having less than a high school diploma or equivalent can make upskilling and gaining employment in higher wage jobs far more difficult for parents, while also increasing the challenge of supervising the remote education of children or acting as supplemental instructors for online activities as well. So looking at the figure, you can get a sense of the depth of the geographies that we included in the analysis. So um, again, here we see the top 20 counties and the orange dotted line running across the figure represents the national share of parents who were limited English proficient and did not have a high school diploma or equivalent. So an important piece with, with this that you can see in the data is that, for example, the disparities uh, and the barriers that immigrant parents face are not uniform across states. For example, here looking at a few counties in California, you can see how some counties such as Los Angeles and Riverside have a, have a higher share of their immigrant parents of young children uh, who did not who were limited English proficient or did not have a high school diploma or equivalent compared to another county such as Santa Clara where this rate was much lower. So this uh, key finding that came out in our data analysis indicates that program and system level solutions also have to be sensitive to local context and keep into and take into account the needs of their individual immigrant parent populations as well. So finally, the final piece of our analysis that I wanna to emphasize to you today, which is a really powerful and interesting point that came out of the analysis and that is detailed specifically in our fact sheets was disproportionality. And what I mean by that is that immigrant parents represented a disproportionate share of many indicators when compared to their share of the overall parent population. So what is an example of what this means? For example, immigrants were 23% of all parents of children ages zero to four in the United States. So one would, one would expect that it would have represented around 23% of all parents of young children who were low income and did not have a high school diploma. However, when actually looking at the data, immigrants were 59% of all parents of young children who are low income and did not have a high school diploma. Um, so there's really serious implications in this data on disproportionality for both the delivery and design and development of services and programs. So program and system, programs and systems have to recognize that immigrants may be a disproportionate share of those in need of services. While other data suggests the need for programs that address a challenge in an immigrant population, this data suggests that in many cases, immigrants may make up a disproportionate share of the population actually being targeted for services in many cases. So moving on, I also wanted to just show disproportionality, gra disproportionality graphically. 
as well as to connect it to some of the geographies that we looked at. This is the same indicator I mentioned on the previous slide of parents of young children who are low income and have less than a high school diploma. So here we're looking solely at immigrant parents. And again, this is uh, for the top 10 states by total immigrant population. You can see two bars for each state. The aqua or teal bar represents what share of the parent population are immigrants. Then the orange bar represents what share immigrants represent of parents who are low income and have less than a high school diploma. So looking at Texas, for example, the second state on the figure, you can see that immigrants were 29% of all parents, but immigrants rep represented 72% of all parents who were low income and had less than a high school diploma for education in the state. And just looking, looking across the graph, you can also see that the bars should be relatively the same height if there is not uh, as high of a level of disproportionality. But as you can see in many states, immigrants made up a disproportionate share of this population. So this is a really serious inequity that was revealed in the data and that also held true for many of the other indicators that we looked at, including digital access, low income, overall education levels, even when not compounded with poverty. And in all those cases, we found that immigrants were significantly more likely to be a large share of the population disproportionate to their share of the total parent population. So unfortunately, this is uh, due to time constraints. This is the limitation. Uh, this is the limit of the data I'll be able to get into today. But in conclusion, you can see the disparities and barriers that were revealed in our data analysis, as well as how these disparities differ across different geographies, as well as different cross tabulations. Again, this was uh, the totality of the analysis and all the indicators we looked at was too much for me to really be able to get to. We could have spent the whole afternoon going through all of them. Uh, I didn't get to highlight some of our indicators related to employment, related to the COVID-19 pandemic, or digital access, all of which also play a key role in looking at equity and how programs can better serve immigrant parents. But overall, I hope this segment of the presentation has given you an understanding of our top line findings, as well as sparked your interest in examining and comparing the data for your own state and areas of interest. Oops, excuse me. Um, so now we're just gonna pause for any questions or clarifications on the data I, I presented. I realized that was a lot of data in a short amount of time. So please, um, I'll be happy to answer any questions that you might have specifically related to the data. And we also ask that you use the Q&A function on the webinar rather than the chat. And once we clarify any questions that folks may have, I'll then pass the presentation to Margie, Maki, and Delia, who are gonna talk more about how systems and programs are addressing and can address these disparities to ensure equity for immigrant parents. So Jake, I, um, I know you've been, well, first of all, thanks for all of that um, great information. And um, I'll, I've been trying to follow some of the questions that are coming in. And um, first of all, maybe if you could just go back to um, a, a quick uh, overview, the uh, how, how is immigrant determined um, in, the, uh, in the ACS? You know, I, in a sense, what, is it, what does it mean? Um, and then if you could uh, just say again, the data set, uh, and then uh, additional question, an additional question is just, do we have the data disaggregated by race and ethnicity or gender? Great, so um, the first question was the definition of immigrant. Uh, so we use the census definition, which would, um, I can't, I'm not sure of the exact wording, but I'd be happy to clarify that in the chat. But I believe it's those born, you know, outside of the US broadly, uh, but those who have, who have naturalized to become US citizens are still counted as immigrants in the ACS. And the second question, Margie, I'm sorry, what was the second question? Um, or do we have the data disaggregated by race and ethnicity um, or gender? 
Yeah, so we do lay out the, um, the overall data, the overall demographics of parents by both race and ethnicity, as well as by gender. Um, when you look at race, race and ethnicity, our major finding was that immigrant parents were much more likely to be Latino or Asian American or Pacific Islander compared to native born parents. That was our primary finding, though that did different, but differ between states and counties. Um, and yes, we have an overview of gender, what share of parents were gender, at least to what share of parents were female, excuse me, who reported that on the census form. Um, but in addition, we'll also be doing a more complete analysis of how race and ethnicity uh, compare to these different characteristics as well over the next few months. Um, yeah, I wanna emphasize for um, folks who are writing in about additional, uh, additional geographies and additional uh, sort of cuts on the data that, um, that we are keeping the, um, the wonderful data team at MPI very busy um, asking for um, additional runs of data. So I would encourage you, Jake already knew who he was gonna be volunteered for this, but um, Jake <laughs> is very willing um, to talk with you about what we have because um, maybe Jake, just run through once more um, what people can find, because I, sure. I do think that there's so many layers to the analysis that yeah, um, depending on what level folks work at, they might be looking for different things. Great. Yeah. So as I mentioned, there's the parents broken out by each age band. Um, so we have an analysis and each of these age bands has immigrant versus native born parents. And so that's parents of children zero to four, parents of children five to 10, parents of children 11 to 13, 14 to 70, and then all parents of children zero to 18. And within each of those age bands of the children uh, broken down into immigrant as well as native born. As for geographies, we have all 50 states plus DC plus the United States in Excel files for all of those age bands. In addition, we have the top 50 counties in, in Excel as well for um, top 50 counties by total population, I should say, for parents of children zero to four, five to 10 and zero to 18. The fact sheets that we're publishing, which really dig into the data more, present some initial conclusions. Those ones are for the 31 states, 31 states with the largest immigrant population that I flashed on the earlier slide uh, that you can also find in the link uh, on our website as well. Those fact sheets only look at parents of children as ages zero to four, as well as five to 10. And again, those are just for those 31 states as well as a national fact sheet too. So any of you who are in the kind of 32nd to 50th state um, or beyond those top 50 counties, um, we also have data for many, many counties. Basically the, the framework for, or the, you know, sort of the explanation um, for the tables and the like is there in the, in the fact sheets that were produced, but they line up essentially well, uh, you know, they line up directly with what you'll see in the data tables that we have um, for those beyond the 31 states. It was already like 400 pages for our communications shop to um, try and lay out to just even do all of those, um, the, um, the top 30, 31 states. And so we're making the data available uh, both at the county and for the other states and for the other age groups. Um, we just expected that the, I guess the most significant implications um, of the data uh, are for families with young children and elementary school age children, where the children are, where children's outcomes are um, so much more tied to their parents' ability to access services for them, or it's just a stage in life when 
um, children are um, more dependent on their parents. And um, obviously, you know, we know a lot of folks working at the middle and high school levels um, will um, will want to use the data as well. But given the space limitations, we thought that uh, we would run with the zero to four and five to ten age groups, um, trying to trying to really um, make some inroads in those systems for how they think about the um, uh, how they're thinking um, about a number of these disparities. Um, so with that. Um, any questions we haven't gotten to and that we don't get at the um, at, uh, get to at the end of the presentation, we promise we'll be back in touch with you online. Uh, but for now, I just wanted to do a quick preview before Delia and Maki start um, to talk about what we think the um, right off the top, some of the potential equity sensitive indicators are that are in the data. Um, now this might, the issue of, of just identifying parents um, really came up for us uh, in our adult education work because parents are mentioned in the um, in the legislation that sends funding down for adult education and workforce training to states. And parents have always traditionally been um, one of sort of the three legs of the stool of groups that were getting served under the um, under that law. But as it's moved towards mandatory requirements uh, for employment and the like, um, parents, and especially this is where the issues of gender come up, um, that we, gender and, and parenting young children, um, it's really become risky to serve parents within that system. So in a system like that, just even being a parent of a young child could itself be an equity sensitive indicator for how money is used. Um, in other systems, very often, low income is sort of the is the default um, for um, uh, for defining those who uh, who are eligible or a priority for service. Uh, one of the things that really jumped out to us from from this data analysis is we just had never we just had never presented this where we um, were gauging who had uh, not just less than a high school diploma or equivalent, which, you know, for if you're a native born young person, you may have dropped out in 10th or 11th or 12th grade. Um, it's, it's almost unheard of to be native born and to, have, and, uh, to not have completed elementary school uh, and or to um, have completed middle school. So the indicators we have for less than five years and less than nine years also raise very um, significant questions about how to, uh, how to think about what responsive programming would look like and what it would look like to equitably provide uh, for parents given how closely low formal education uh, levels are connected to the ability to move up in the workforce and to, um, and to earn uh, uh, earn a higher wage. Um, also limited English proficiency. Very often we put people in one category or another, but if you start to think about the compounding challenges of having a number of these, uh, of having a number of these challenges, we feel that that's another way to think about equity sensitive indicators, not to chop them all up um, into, uh, into just sort of uh, putting people in just one category or having only one category available, but especially if we're thinking about what does responsive programming look like to really take stock of these um, types of characteristics that are so easily found in existing census data. These are not, you know, these are not things that were done 
um, you know, with a, um, I, these are, these numbers are collected very, uh, very regularly. They're really uh, about the best numbers that the country has to put forward to guide state and local efforts. And so, um, you know, we, it's, it's sort of, um, uh, we just think, we just think this is a very important opportunity to be saying, these are not controversial. Um, this is not a controversial source of data. It's not a source of data where it's, uh, you know, where it's hard to get access to. So why aren't we using it more? I think is really um, what we're thinking, uh, having done this analysis. So with that, I'll pass it over to Maki, who uh, does all of uh, leads our work in the early childhood space, um, and she's already been working to try and crosswalk some of this. In, uh, in technical assistance sessions that she's been doing. Uh, but Maki, why don't you um, just walk through some of what you see as the implications and opportunities here? Great, thanks Margie. Um, so yeah, as Margie said, I'll be talking a little bit about implications of this data from the point of view of early childhood systems. So covering that birth to age, birth to age five band that Jake talked about. Um, and coming from an early childhood perspective, I'm just really thrilled to have this conversation in the context of this framing because it really is so important to approach the needs of young children in this holistic context, taking into consideration their family situations and their environments, which are so critical to their well being and their future outcomes. Um, and taking a two generation approach makes it possible to address a range of important issues, including promoting home language and English language development through partnerships between families and early learning programs, improving the quality and the relevance of early childhood programs and making sure that they're accessible to immigrant families by taking those parent needs into account and helping to promote young children's socio-emotional health and well-being by approaching them as part of a family unit. Ultimately though, what this data show us across the board is what an important target population immigrant families are for so many services where they are not now being prioritized for service and where they are in many ways continuing to be underserved and even overlooked. So with that in mind, um, some key implications on the next slide that you'll see. Um, this data really point to some of the following that you can see in the slide, including expanding access and relevance of high quality early learning services overall supporting family, friend, and neighbor care that immigrant families disproportionately rely on, improving early childhood data systems that make immigrant and DLL needs visible, as well as leveraging home visiting services that are a high potential vehicle for addressing these immigrant family needs through a two-generation approach. And I'll talk about all of these on the next slide in greater detail, um, if you can move it along, um, with their policy implications. And I will be moving quickly, just given limited time, but I'll just say that we have other resources that I can point folks to and would be more than happy to share and brief folks further if there are participants on the line who are interested in connecting on any of these issues. So first, there is absolutely a continued need to expand both access to and the relevance of high quality early childhood services for young children of immigrants. The data that we just saw shows the importance of these kinds of supportive early learning programs for young children whose parents are less likely to have a high school diploma or a college degree. And we know how highly correlated young children's educational outcomes are to their parents' educational attainment. Young children of immigrants in many ways stand to benefit even more than their peers from early learning programs. The data still shows us that these children are less likely to be enrolled in any kind of center-based early learning opportunities or preschool programs. 
Ultimately, there's also still a lot we don't know about the experiences of young children of immigrants and other dual language learners in early childhood. Much of the information that Margie and Jake just shared with us simply isn't visible in early childhood systems in the ways that it should be, which means that key needs and characteristics aren't being seen or understood and taken into account in program design. In early childhood systems, language use and language environments are generally undocumented and therefore invisible until kindergarten entry at earliest. And just given everything we know from the research base about the critical importance of the earliest years for language learning and brain development, there's an urgent need to identify and understand these language and other characteristics of young children earlier on in order to identify these gaps in service and also improve program quality to make sure that appropriate services and support are being provided to these young children and families. And that includes even just the most basic translation and interpretation services that are often unavailable. So at the state level, on the one hand, starting to develop comprehensive data systems that cut across early childhood programs and really capture this relevant information about home language use is critical both to improve access and quality for this group. And similarly, weaving issues of cultural and linguistic relevance across quality rating system tools and their implementation, these are both critical steps that can be taken to address these two generation gaps that we're seeing. The next piece I wanted to mention is that we also know that young children of immigrants are disproportionately likely to be utilizing less formal forms of childcare, namely family, friend, and neighbor care. This is for a lot of reasons that are highlighted in the data, beginning of course with the unaffordability of many formal options for low-income families, as well as irregular parent work schedules that so many essential workers are facing that necessitate less formal types of care. And this remains a huge barrier for low-income families. There's also a lack of formal options where staff reflect the language and culture of families seeking care, which is a big issue given what we saw about levels of limited English proficiency. And finally, families might be seeking care for reasons other than employment. They may be taking classes to raise their English proficiency or upskill for employment reasons, caring for an elderly relative, or just simply have other family needs to take care of that necessitate intermittent care. Ultimately, this is a key issue for family economic security in addition to young children's development that's overdue for funding and policy support. So at federal and local levels, this is another important opportunity. We need to be providing funding and support for these kids where they are, which in many cases are places that are not being reached by current funding streams like the Child Care Development Grant. And this is just a particularly critical issue right now, given the major new investments that are coming into the childcare system at the national level. Um, and then the final piece I wanted to touch on is the possibility of home visiting programs being leveraged to address many of the issues that have been raised earlier in the conversation. Home visiting, because of the way it's delivered and the way that it places trusting relationships at the center of its program model, is a high potential vehicle to reach many immigrant families that are considered hard to reach. And just given the compounded risk factors that many immigrant families are facing, including lower levels of income, education, and English proficiency, this population should be a target for these services, but we know that they're currently under participating in these programs. And this is something that can be addressed at both national and local levels. The Federal Maternal Infant and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program, for instance, can prioritize cultural relevance, place a higher value on different forms of evidence, given that the nationally accepted models currently have thin evidence in terms of cultural relevance and suitability for diverse populations. 
And McV can also require more information, for example, in its state needs assessments, looking to the equity um, indicators that Margie just spoke to. So I will stop there for now and hand things over to Delia, but happy to get in touch with folks who'd like to just to discuss further. And thanks so much to Margie and Jake for including me in this conversation. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm so excited to talk about this because I think this data analysis has uncovered uh, some of the issues that many of us have talked about for a long time in a way that's accessible to those who perhaps aren't as familiar with the issues. And also, given the climate today and the opportunities today with funding, I think this is the perfect timing to begin to talk about segments of our population who aren't being addressed. So the first point I want to make in terms of implications of this data for K-12 students is the significant numbers of students we're talking about. Often when we think about needs of students and we think about programs that serve uh, elementary and high school students, we think about immigrants as a niche population. And as you look at the numbers and, and the um, analysis of who the parents of these children are, it's very clear that in many states, in many localities, uh, uh, students of immigrant parents who are uh, who, who bring many times the issues of their parents into the schooling and the challenges uh, make up a, a significant proportion of the population. Uh, I think it's important to also look at the severity of the of the issues that face these students. Uh, the fact that we saw that nine percent of um, immigrant parents have less than a fifth grade education says so much for some of the issues we're dealing with in schools. It says so much for what some of the responses should be. Uh, and it just says so much about how we have ignored, I think, the finer points of some of the indicators that we've used. We are used to using poverty as an indicator uh, um, triggering program responses, but when you look at the severity of poverty among this population, when you look at the severity of education level of parents in this population, you begin to see that one of the implications is we need to have more targeted programs. Um, moving on to um, the source of the data. Uh, it is often, I often hear from, from people in schools and, and states that we just don't have the data. We cannot collect the data. It, um, the categories that we need and that would help us in our programming and in our, and our um, identification of needs is not available. We're limited as to the kind of data we can uh, use. I think looking at the fact that this was all pulled from Census Bureau data is important because it is data that's accessible and it's data that's widely utilized, excuse me, across many social programs and across state governments, uh, also across federal um, governments. The Census Bureau data is a source of um, identification for many programs in our schools. Uh, Title I, for example, uh, students for Title I and students for Title III or the um, Services for English Proficient Students is taken from Census Bureau data. So this data is accessible. Um, it's also notable that the data goes down to the county level uh, because when you are able to uh, access the data from a county level, you are also able to access what's happening in your locality. Uh, many school districts, of course, cut across um, counties. Many counties are school districts in and of themselves. There's a difference in how um, the Census Bureau data at the county level overlaps with school districts, but it is accessible. 
Uh, the other aspect of this is that many social agencies in your locale already use Census Bureau data. So it really speaks to uh, an opportunity for collaboration across um, entities, school districts and social service agencies can work together to look at the data and analyze what's going on within their schools. Uh, another piece of this, an opportunity that just popped right out when I looked at the data, is how much more specifically we can target program responses. Um, as we look at uh, the situation we're in today with the, um, the recovery from COVID and kids coming back to school, uh, hopefully many kids still out of school, uh, schools have really been challenged to come up with the appropriate program responses to make up for learning loss. That's happening, lo learning loss opportunity um, while it's currently happening and also when kids are coming back into school. Uh, one of the fallback uh, programs has been, let's focus on the literacy of these kids. When you are able to look at this data in a more targeted way, thus have a more targeted program response. If you have a large proportion of your students whose parents have less than a fifth grade uh, level of education, then you are more likely to create a different kind of program for these kids than you would when you're talking about parents who have a high school education. The literacy input for those children is so different. Uh, it also speaks to the need for these two generation programs, programs that involve the parents and take into account what the home environment looks like so that you're shaping a program that's much more targeted to the needs of kids. Um, this is also the case when you look at collaboration with social service agencies. Often social service agencies are serving the same, um, the, the parents of these kids, and there's a huge opportunity for collaborating on programs that are reaching kids and, uh, and parents at the same time. Uh, finally, this data also gives entree into a wider array of responses to academic issues. I, I mentioned literacy uh, programs and tutoring programs is another popular um, response to the, the needs that COVID, the COVID pandemic has um, uncovered. Um, the fact that there are many, many other issues that are showing up beyond just academic issues, that are issues that are um, specific to families who live in poverty. Uh, if you look at whether parents are working, if you look at how low the poverty level, it says a lot about access to outside services. Certainly when you look at the data that has to do with uh, digital literacy, you learn a lot about whether parents are able to help their students, whether there's any digital uh, equipment and access within the home to begin with. So again, you are able to target program responses beyond just academic responses, but looking at some of the relationship issues, looking at some of the support services that are needed. So this data can provide just a wealth of responses. So moving on to the next piece of this, um, which is the broad implications for the use of this data. There are two that we would point out for K-12. And I have to tell you, if you sit and think about this, there are many, many more, but we were limited in our time. We are limited in our time today, but we were also limited uh, in our time to respond to this because it's a tremendous amount of information. But the two I think are important is demonstrating the household, household levels of disparities meaning the disparities that affect the entire family 
and thus have implications for students in schools. So that with regard to not only the new federal funds, but with current funding uh, that we've had before COVID, uh, Title I, Title III, Title IV, many of the, the funding sources that schools are uh, familiar with, we begin to see that perhaps our responses need to be more targeting family and the environment that, that is supporting these children at home, thus supporting them in schools. Um, finally, um, the second piece of this is more focused on kids. So I would say the first one focuses on the entire family, what the effect is on the child and on learning. The second one is more programmatic. So what do we do about this? Uh, how do we respond to these family characteristics through not just two generation uh, programs, but also programs that focus on what those larger triggers have set off academically and in a learning environment for children and how we need to respond to those. So uh, just a few, if we can move on to some of the policy and funding levers. Uh, at the federal level, uh, it's important that we identify programmatic responses based on parent characteristics. Um, many of the new funds that are coming, the relief funds that are going to schools, um, allow for services to um, parents in terms of literacy programs, programs that we can show have an impact on student learning, uh, programs that provide um, digital support for both parents and kids. These, this data is an ideal justification for two generation programs, but it's also an ideal um, situation for looking more deeply into the characteristics of the parents and how they are able to support their children and what we can do as educators to mitigate what's happening uh, or not happening in the home. Um, a second aspect uh, or policy lever at the federal level is expanding the analysis of and reporting on federal data sets. I know those of you in school districts report a lot of information to the, uh, the federal government and it's fed back to you. Um, the NAEP data goes into some of characteristics of the home environment for students. Uh, certainly the Office of Civil Rights data gives us some of that same information. I think as a group of educators, um, we need to learn to use more refined points of data within these larger data sets to tell us what's going on in our school districts and to tell us what, um, how we need to respond as, um, as educators. It also allows us as advocates for our children to call on the federal government to give us more detailed data about our, the homes our children come from and their own learning uh, and the implications for their learning. Um, a third aspect of this is the federal guidance for using the American Relief Program funds that is going that's going to the schools, ESSER funds. Uh, I understand that the guidance went out today that uh, respond from your states to the guidance is due, uh, I think June 7th. There's an excellent opportunity for schools to provide feedback as to how that should be used in their own uh, districts and at the state level. Uh, to look at what the federal uh, government is requiring the states to report and how um, through those funds and using the data you have about the characteristics of your students, you are able to provide more targeted responses and responses that uh, untie your hands from some of the things as educators we felt that we haven't been able to deal with before. 
Another piece of this, I just have to say, and again, we could go on with the federal implications, but one that I think is so important is targeting Title I as a source of funding to meet the specific needs of immigrant families. Unfortunately, we don't often think enough about how Title I is a significant source of funding for immigrant students. Immigrant students, uh, like all other students, um, generate Title I funds, and we have not done an excellent job as a country of using those funds to target the specific needs of immigrant families and students. So um, it is the largest source of federal funding in education. And beyond these relief funds, it is an ongoing uh, source of funding. So one of the other policy and funding levers is to begin to use this data because the the amount of uh, Title I dollars that flows to districts is based on the census um, and poverty level. So it is important for us to look at how we're using those funds to really address the needs of significant portions of our populations in targeted ways. So moving on to the state and local policy. Yes. So yeah, I think maybe um, we um, we should move on uh, okay. and um, I, I mean move on to adult ed and um, and then uh, lots of it's easy to answer folks online. Maki's already been responding to some of the questions in chat. Jake can't because we're all share uh, screen sharing with him. Um, but, um, but anyway, so so Delia, any questions about state and local? Let's answer um, them online. And folks, yes, the PowerPoint is available. Uh, those of you who were asking about um, the county data, Jake, isn't it like three, over 300 counties that we're gonna have data tables for? Uh, we have the capability to make- Ah, uh, right, people counties, need to ask we'll just you. publishing 50. However, if there is a really specific need for a particular county, I can, I can work with folks as well. Right, that you'll have the data for that. All right, so I'm not gonna say much. I, I said a little bit about adult ed already. So I'll just say very quickly that, um, you know, oddly it's early childhood and K-12 who are so concerned uh, with partnering with parents, but kind of the main place from the federal government perspective where there's money to work with immigrant parents had been in adult education but then the system really uh, moved away from serving them with the law that was passed, uh, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And so one of the key uses we think for the data is first of all, uh, to be trying to make it clear that there is an important adult learner sub um, population um, here facing multiple disparities and that there, it's really not that hard to use the data um, to, um, to show from an equity perspective that uh, whether or not they're being included in services. Um, but then the other issue is what should those pro what should those programs and services look like? Because if you're in the early childhood field, you know, you'd really want you'd really want that programming to be very focused on a lot of the topics that early childhood is concerned with in terms of um, you know, uh, cognitive development in children and uh, use of home language and understanding the services that might be available for early intervention and things like that. Same thing um, in elementary school, that there's some really specific things that, um, that folks, uh, systems serving those children would really wanna be in touch with parents about and making sure we're shared with them. So that's where we're thinking that Yes, doing a better job within the silo of adult ed makes sense, but what kind of partnership makes sense with early childhood or K-12 um, in order to figure out how to meet these needs? So just with the next slide, 
Um, you know, we have some ideas about how to do that at the federal level, um, where it, it doesn't seem, it, there, there are a few sort of not that unusual ideas for how to kind of restore services for parents in the adult ed system, uh, and also to have them be better served at the state and local level. But um, I think moving to the next slide, you know, when we think in terms of what the two generation opportunities are, now in, in some systems, you have a real focus on two generation, it's right up at the governor's level, or it's really thought about across systems. Um, what we, you know, we're talking more just in a, in a very general sense, that, um, that since we have early childhood and K-12 um, really focusing services on children with a commitment to working with parents, but not the capacity, um, how do we start to incorporate more of these measures um, into how each of the three systems is thinking and how social services is thinking so that we can have program designs that um, that really respond to the um, to what what both systems from a two generation lens are hoping for um, in terms of their work with um, with uh, both parents and children. So with that, um, I think we're um, so this is so I think we can take another five minutes uh, for anybody who wants to stay on the line. Um, I'll tick through a few quick um, answers. Yes, all this is available online. No, the, uh, these are questions that some of you asked. Um, the, um, the ACS, the American Community Survey from the Census Bureau does not differentiate between immigrants and refugees. It's just a foreign born um, uh, measure, but our, our uh, data team at MPI has tried to figure out, are there ways to, um, uh, to impute refugees um, status in a sense, not status, but people who are likely to be refugees. So if that's a kind of deeper question or exploration, uh, we can hook you up with folks in our team around that. There's also questions about our undocumented immigrants accounted for in the ACS. Definitely MPI specializes in trying to impute immigration status using um, things that are uh, uh, indicators that are available in other data sets. Um, even the federal government is doing that now, um, but it's not something you can get directly from uh, this data set. But again, if that's a deep question that any of you want to explore, uh, we have plenty of people on the broader MPI team um, that can uh, take that up. And then another was, did the data take into account youth and children who were foreign born? No, this is a parent level analysis. So we were looking just at parents uh, because we wanted to, um, especially, you know, really to us, what COVID showed was that um, that we're we're really focusing on kids in school, um, and we're saying that parents are important, but we're really not taking account of a lot of the household and parent level characteristics that clearly um, have been um, have been undermining um, or. Um, uh, uh, just causing more difficulty um, in a sense that schools really are, have not been uh, very well equipped to address. So it really puts forward these very big policy questions about how do we get the two, um, the two aspects of, of um, supports to work right. So Jake, one question that I think is a softball for you, what's the definition of linguistic isolation? And then also, if you could say a little bit more about what counted as a digital access device. Um, sure. uh, and then I have another one for you, but I don't wanna give you too many Sure, ones. so linguistic isolation is anyone, any parent who lives in a household in which 
everyone over the age of 14 is limited English proficient. So that would be anyone who, anyone over the age of 14 in the household does not speak English proficiently. This is the definition of linguistic isolation. Um, and then for digital access, uh, so the way we measured it was folks who had access to the internet and then by access to a computer or laptop, we didn't include uh, access to a smartphone here uh, just because of some of the demands of using laptops and computers that have become up increasingly in remote education. I should also note that, as I mentioned at the beginning, the data for access to an internet and to a computer and laptop is pooled 2014 to 2018 data. So it doesn't necessarily take into account outreach or distribution of laptops by school districts and other entities. During the pandemic, though, it does uh, serve as a useful proxy to think about level of fami familiarity with access to digital isolation and other issues related to that as well. Right, and it's the best available data um, that we have. Um, Jake, can you talk a little bit about, do we have uh, information on languages spoken by LEP immigrant parents? No, we didn't include languages spoken. Um, however, there is, we do have really extensive data on that in the data hub, uh, which is a uh, an ongoing resource from MPI, which you can access on our website as well. All right, so there are so many great questions that you all are still sending in. Um, and we will get back to you on every single one of them um, and, uh, and just are delighted to have so much uh, interest from all of you um, in this work. And we are, you know, we've, we've been, I would say, equipped for a while to be moving forward uh, or helping folks who are looking to move forward on um, issues such as, uh, such as the ones that, um, that we're pointing to from an equity perspective. Uh, but we think we finally also have a great data resource that, um, that will allow, allow folks to be, uh, to be making the case a little more directly and also looking for some system framework changes. So um, looking forward to being, being in touch. Definitely, we'll get back on the questions. And um, thank you so much to all of you for the work you're doing um, in these fields and, and to uh, support immigrant families and children. And um, thanks for your time and attention today. Take care.